everybody. Welcome back to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and today we are going to talk about something that has been really, really important to me for as long as I can remember, and that is loving the unloved. Everybody who knows me, who has been following Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook, and my cookbooks and my stuff on social media for decades now, has known that I'm really, really into the things that maybe not everybody else is. So in the area of fish, this would be the inevitable trash fish. This is a term that's kind of loaded in a, in a lot of ways, but what it generally means is this is a fish that for some reason or another, the dominant culture where you're catching that fish doesn't happen to like it for reasons that are often nonsensical. So today I'm going to be talking with Tom Dixon, and Tom Dixon is the author of a fantastic cookbook called Fishing for Buffalo, and it is everything you wanted to know about not only catching rough fish, which is the other term for this kind of fish, but also how to deal with them in the kitchen. It's a great book, and I'm really happy to be talking to Tom. And also, I'm going to have my good friend, Scott Laysath. And Scott Laysath, you may or may not know, and he is the guy who is behind the TV show Dead Meat, which, as you might imagine, is an entire TV show about zigging where other people zag. And so both Tom and Scott and I have decades of experience among us dealing with fish that many people think are unloved or unworthy or somehow less than perfect. And we're going to dispel myth after myth after myth on this show. And I really, really hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, let's take it away. Scott Laysath and Tom Dixon, welcome to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am super glad to have both of you guys on. This is a topic today that is near and dear to my heart. Welcome. Good to be here. Thank you. So we are going to talk unloved fish, trash fish, and the species that are less than glamorous. And I brought you guys on for specific reasons. In the case of Tom, uh, you wrote one of the coolest books I've ever read about fish and seafood. It's called Fishing for Buffalo. And you'll tell me a little bit more about that book in a second. But it is the only book that I know of that is dedicated to not only catching, but to eating what they call rough fish, uh, fish that are not glamorous. They might have extra bones or whatever, whatever. But I like this book so much, I stole it from my friend Chris Niskanen about 15 years ago. And I still look at it from time to time. And you are now with uh, Montana uh, Fish and Game, right? That's right. Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Ah, they're a unique freshwater perspective. And Scott Laysath, you are, among other things, the host of the Dead Meat TV show and the Sporting Chef. And you are equally well known for treading the unbeaten path when it comes to random animal matter that you put into your mouth. You know, I have got a mission to let people know that a lot of these ugly, slimy fish are actually pretty good to eat. I know, totally. I mean, I also grew up in the New York, New Jersey area on party boats. And I have, since the time I was a teenager, have been not really accepting whatever the conventional wisdom is, no matter where I am in terms of, oh, this fish is good to eat and this fish is bad to eat. So I kind of want to start there. What makes a trash fish, in many cases, a trash fish for you may not be a trash fish for me. And there's this kind of universal pigeonholing of this, that, or the other species for reasons that are not entirely clear to me. And, and I'd love to, to start this with you, Tom. What in your experience makes 
any group of people or even an individual say, oh, well, that's a trash fish? Well, I think what happens in, with fish, with both saltwater and freshwater, I'm not as knowledgeable about saltwater, but certainly it seems to apply is there's a hierarchy of fish among anglers and among people who eat fish. And depending on where you live, there's certain species that are at the top and then there's certain species at the bottom. And I'll just give you an example. Um, in Minnesota, where I grew up, um, no one in Minnesota would ever eat a bullhead. They just, they would rather die than eat a bullhead or. That, that's kind yeah. of the, like the, only the Iowans eat bullheads, right? That's right. It's right. And so, but Iowans come up to Southern Minnesota in droves. Sometimes they come up in busloads to fish for bullheads. And by the same token, the Minnesotans would never eat a, what they call an eel pout um, or a burbot. But in a lot of states, and, and uh, especially in Montana, where I live now, uh, burbot or ling are highly esteemed food fish. And so it doesn't really make sense why one fish is considered you know, palatable or considered a premier game fish and other fish aren't. But I think there's a number of factors, if, and I'd be happy to talk about them if you want. Yeah, give me, give me your top one or two, and then we'll, we'll move it over to Scott. Well, I think the biggest thing is the boniness of the fillet. So generally, fish that have a lot of bones in the fillet, like suckers, gold eye, moon eye, carp, are disparaged as food just because they're more bother. And the other big factor, I think, is the, the lip the lip factor. And for whatever reason, people don't like fish with lips. And I think, I think it just, I think it reminds them too much of their own lips. And it's like eating a person. That's my theory. I had never actually heard of that. That's hilarious. Uh, and I'm thinking of my own experience. And I think the lippiest fish that I ever grew up with was a fish called a tatog, uh, also called a blackfish. It's a, uh, it's a wrasse that lives in the North Atlantic, and they are highly sought after. Again, there seems to be no rhyme or reason. Scott? Well, you know, Tom, you were talking about fish with lips, and I immediately flashed on sucker gigging in Missouri on the opening night of sucker gigging season. And I'm guessing that most of America hasn't been sucker gigging. I hadn't been either. So flat, crystal clear water. There's, I don't know how many boats on the water. Picture a frog gig about twice as long. And these suckers, as they're hanging along on the bottom, you go by and, you, and you're gigging suckers. You throw them into a bucket and you're drinking a fair amount of moonshine while you're doing it because the suckers, as you mentioned, have got lips and they're super bony. And who else besides these people in Missouri eats suckers? And so it was intriguing to me because at the end of the night, Basically, you just cut the sides off, leave the bones in. They've got this thing that looks like a waffle iron that has a whole bunch of blades on it, and it scores the sides of the sucker. Then they bread it and deep fry it. And I remember asking the question, do you ever pair any dipping sauce with your fried sucker? And they looked at me like, why would you want to ruin a perfectly good piece of sucker? <laughs> and, and I thought there was, there was, you know, and it could have used a little dipping sauce. But somewhere along the line, these people in Missouri decided that sucker's good, whereas I'm guessing the rest of the country says sucker's bad. Well, there's a funny side note to that very particular waffle irony thing. Um, I saw that on your show, and I've seen Tony Bourdain did it as well. Uh, it's kind of a, a rite of passage in some senses to do that sucker gigging in, in the right. Ozarks. 
And as soon as I saw it, I'm like, that is exactly the same as the hanagiri technique in Japan that they use for pike eels, which are similarly bony fish. And what, except they do it by hand with a Japanese knife, where if you can imagine as you're listening to this, a side, I mean, you don't really want to call it a fillet because it's got bones in it, but a side of a fish. And then you make lots and lots and lots of thin, narrow cuts perpendicular to where the spine was. And what that every cut goes down almost to the bottom, but not quite because you want to keep that skin on there and you want to go through the bones, but keep the skin on and you do cut after cut after cut. And the guys in the Ozarks have kind of made a science out of it and they've created these devices that do it more or less automatically. But in Japan, they do this by hand and the net effect is really cool because when you fry them and Scott, you'll corroborate me on this, that skin contracts and so the pieces of the fish open up a little bit like a peony flower you don't even notice the bones at all you could taste no bones because those thin cuts are so close together i mean you've got just these little tiny pieces of bone that as they fry they disappear yeah yeah and it's a very ingenious way of making accessible a fish that otherwise would be not accessible right yeah chris that's the same technique that i was taught by a guy named bud raymer he was the owner of Raymer's Fish House in Winona, Minnesota, and he was the top commercial fisherman on the Mississippi River, pretty much from the Twin Cities down to the Iowa border. And he would catch tons of carp and bigmouth and smallmouth buffalo. And that was the technique that he used for cooking carp. And I watched him do exactly what you said the Japanese chefs do with carp fillets is he would have these massive knives and he would score those fillets and then he would deep fry those fillets and the hot oil was softening the bones. But what it was doing is kind of like what Scott said, it sort of just disintegrates them. They're still there, but they become soft or almost brittle and you can just basically chew them right up. And so they're still there, but they're rendered palatable. And Hmm. that's an ingenious technique. And it seems to be done all over the place, too, because the Japanese wouldn't cornmeal fry it like they do in the Ozarks. They would just do it with tempura or with just rice flour. You know, another technique for suckers, and uh, uh, Scott, I saw this on your show. Um, I think those guys were bow fishing for big head carp. And was that it? That was with big head carp or silver that, carp? I can't remember. Uh, it was that whichever Asian carp it was on the, uh, on the uh, Illinois River outside of Peoria. Yeah. And they were, yeah, they, they were grinding up the meat and dealing with the bones that way. Could you it, talk about that a little bit? It worked great. So, you know, the Asian carp are bottom feeders. You know, they're filter, I mean, they're filter feeders, not bottom feeders. And so it's a lighter flesh fish. To me, they taste better than your common carp. Um, and we were with a guy, uh, Dirk's Fish and Gourmet in Chicago. Um, we were invited up by Austin Goolsby, who was... Obama's chief economic advisor. He said, I love your show. Let's go shoot some carp. That's so, so random. And we never, and we <laughs> never discussed politics. He's a really good guy. I've connected with him a few times since. Anyway, um, what Dirk did after we shot the carp, and it was weird. And I don't know, Tom, you probably know what this is. When we opened the carp up, rather than whatever the inside of a normal fish looks like, there was all this kind of olive drab, algae looking goo that ran out of them. What's that? I, 
<laughs> I have no, I have no idea. You know, I've never seen, oh. I've never seen that carp species. <laughs> I've, Fort, I've never. Fortunately, fortunately, they haven't made it this far to Montana. Well, and I've never seen goo running out of a fish, the green goo anyway. And so all we did, we just, I mean, we left the bones in, we take a side, take the skin off, some of the bloodline, and then run it through a grinder um, and ground the whole thing. Dirk made fish cakes out of it. They tasted just like any other fish cake. You never tasted a bone. I had since tried the same thing with some American shad, which you know, if you've got some patience, you can pull little strips of meat out of that shad. And I think we've probably all tried different things to do with shad. They're, they're really good flavored fish, but the bones and the little feathery bones get in the way. So I did the same thing with shad last year. I ran some sides of shad through the grinder, made fish cakes out of it, and they were absolutely delicious and you tasted no bone. That's a great idea. So uh, one technical point, uh, what size die are you using? Because I imagine it would matter. You know, I, he started with a larger plate and then went to the smaller, and I don't remember which one exactly he used. But, but you want to go big and then go small because obviously small is going to eliminate some of the other pieces of bone. Ah, good idea. Like probably like a six five and then a four four and a half, which is kind of your normal, you know, large normal deal. Yeah. So a little bit along these lines, I suspect that yeah. the but it worked the, with any bony fish. Sure, I suspect that along the lines of the green goo, that one of the things that makes a trash fish a trash fish is there's got to be some sort of ick factor, and you know it's very clear with burbot. So if you've ever picked up a burbot, eel pout, mariah, lawyer fish, whatever you want to call it, um, it has this disconcerting habit of wrapping around your arm when you try to get it off the hook. And I've seen big, strong, grown men scream like a little girl when that happens. And it's definitely, uh, you know, you have to get through it the first time, then like, okay, they're just going to do it. Well, the same basic fish in the North Atlantic is called a cusk. And there's wolf eels. And then Scott, you and I have, caught pricklebacks, which are the monkey face deals. And yeah. so there's kind of like a weirdness factor there. Then you have the idea of like, well, if you think about a prickleback or a wolf fish or some other fish like that, they have two eyes right in the front of their face. So they actually have faces. Whereas most fish, if you look at them dead on, there's eyes way on the side of their head. These are on the front. So there's, there's typically some kind of a weirdness factor about them. Um, I can tell you that Shupik, uh, a bowfin, they have an odd smell, and they also are fairly challenging to cook with once you once you actually work with them. <laughs> Sorry, I just flashed on my only bowfish experience. And it was- yeah, bowfins are so okay. So bowfins have the same enzyme that arrowtooth flounder do in Alaska, which is once they die, you have to go through heaven and earth to prevent their meat from turning into wallpaper paste. Fish pudding is what I call it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there is the visual factor goes into it. Like most of the fish that we're talking about, most of them, there's a, uh, they, well, that doesn't look like a regular fish. So that could throw it into the trash fish category. But again, if with everything that we're about to say, there's going to be an exception. Sometimes there's a touch factor. So along with the cusk and the burbot, the ling which is not related to a ling cod, but it's a codfish relative that lives around the coast of uh, New Jersey and New York. They're also kind of gooshy and ooky. Then the extra bones is definitely a factor. So 
I would say, and I want to kind of lead the conversation in this direction now, along the lines of the Shupik, the bowfin, um, that is one of the two most difficult fish that I've ever had to work with. So because of the wallpaper paste aspect, the other one being Menhaden. And Menhaden's also known as Bunker, and they're kind of a mackerel-y, herring-y, sardine relative that you use universally for either fish meal and industrial purposes. In fact, the port of Reedville in Virginia, the Omega Protein, is the single largest port for fishing in the United States, and it is only Menhaden for fish meal. And if you try to cook a bunker, I know everybody from about North Carolina to Maine is squinching up their nose, and with good reason. They're so greasy, fishy that you could probably let them on fire if you dry them. And so those two fish, the bowfin and the and the menhaden, are the only two fish in my many years on this earth that had kind of defeated me. How about you guys? Well, Chris, um, you're kind of how low can you go? And I think for <laughs> for everyone, there's a fish where they just couldn't eat it. And I think after Scott's description of the big head carp. I think the green goo, I don't think I could get past that, no, no matter how savory those fish cakes were. Um, but I also think, you know, you can go really high with rough fish or trash fish. I and mean, some of them, there's just a strange prejudice, like with eel pout or uh, lingcod, as they're called in parts of the United States. Those fish had an incredible filet of beautiful white meat. They're so delicious. And... It's as good as any fish as you can find. They, you know, they, a lot of people call it poor man's lobster, and they'll fillet out an eel pout and then boil it and then dip the boiled meat in drawn butter. It tastes like lobster. And yet the eel pout, as you said, is so gross. I've got a friend who calls them the ish of fish. <laughs> and so there, you have to get past something with those. And another one that's interesting that's got an incredible fillet that you don't have to get past anything other than just sort of weird prejudice is the freshwater drum. That's oh, a beautiful fish. If you ask me what's the top rough fish for eating, I'd have to say the freshwater drum, also called the sheep's head. Yep, 100%. It's just, it, it's just fantastic. And I think you could catch a mess of drum and a mess of walleye in a lake like Lake Waconia in Minneapolis. I've caught both of those and fillet them out and batter fry them, and you couldn't tell them apart. No way. I can tell them apart because of one major thing, and it's actually an advantage for the freshwater drum. Freshwater drum are considerably more fatty than walleye are. Walleye are super, super lean, and every freshwater drum I've caught and eaten, which is in the dozens and scores at this point, has been greasy enough to get the cutting board greasy, and that makes them phenomenal to smoke. That's interesting because I haven't encountered that nearly as much either in Minnesota or Wisconsin, South Dakota, or in Montana. There is a red line on them that I fillet off, but uh, the rest of the fillet seems to be as uh, unfatty as a walleye. So that's interesting, your experience. Yeah, and my experience includes uh, a bunch of freshwater drum uh, from the St. Croix. Huh. It could be a time of year thing. Maybe it is, yeah. Do you have uh, experience with the freshwater drum, Scott? I don't, but I don't feel like we gave Bowfin enough time, I'm telling, <laughs> because, you know, I was unaware that they need to be processed, I'm telling you, immediately. If you can flay them in the water, it's probably best before you put them in the boat, because I had taken, and for people that don't know, just look up Bowfin. They're not all that attractive. We were uh, night 
bow fishing for longnose gar and our guide said look there's a bow fan and he got all crazy about it and said we got to get this for the dead meat show so the next day i gutted it put it on ice kept it really really cold the next day i'm filleting it and you could fillet it with a spoon when oh. i say fish pudding <laughs> i mean fish pudding it's that it turns that soft and yet i brought it to a guy in uh, somewhere near Tampa, Florida, of chef guy, and he made, you know, when in doubt, make fish cakes. He made fish cakes out of it, and they firmed up. They tasted just fine. They no longer tasted like they looked. The texture was gone. I don't know what the deal was on that, but um, I'd like to give Bowfin another try. Just, but the first thing I'm going to do is process it and cook it. Yeah. So the Cajuns that I talked to for hook, line, and supper. Um, cause I do have a little piece on Bowfin in the book. What I said is, yeah, Hey man, how do you do this? Cause I've had that same experience that you did. And they said, yep, you bonk them on the head and to stun them. And then you basically fillet them alive. And then you put those fillets in a, in a plastic bag and you put it in an ice slurry right away. And then it'll because stay. You, you okay. said is, there's an enzyme in there that breaks it down. Is that what happens? Yeah. It's my understanding okay. that that particular fish has an enzyme that just kind of, it's a little bit like the enzyme that affects shellfish when they die, where right, they kind of dissolve right. from within. Sure. Hey, everybody. A quick shout out to one of our sponsors, and that is Filson. Outdoorsmen, hunters, and anglers have trusted Filson for unfailing goods since the 1897 Alaskan Gold Rush. Available in retail stores right now, Filson dry bag totes, duffels, and backpacks will keep your gear dry no matter how wet the conditions. And while you're there, be sure to check out their waterproof Skagit jacket and cap. They're built for fishing in the nastiest weather. When the sun comes out, Filson's Twin Lakes shirts, barrier neck gaiter, and angler caps will keep you cool and prevent painful sunburns. See it all at filson.com. So you, have you ever had a fish that's defeated you other than the bowfin, Scott? <laughs> uh, you know, not so much. I had a fish that wouldn't die. We had snakeheads in Florida. And I buried a chef's knife through the middle of his head. I did everything I could to dispatch this thing, and it wouldn't die. Um, when we did the monkey face eel, same thing happened. We, so we were, you know, Golden Gate, our Kirk Lombard, same guy that you did the monkey face thing with. Um, we took the monkey face eel, kept them in a cooler for the better part of a day, brought them to a Thai restaurant down by AT&T Park in San Francisco. These fish had been in a cooler for I don't know how long, and yet when I went to clean them, they jumped off the cutting board, which was oh. really good. It was really good for TV, but um, I don't know. I didn't realize they could survive not in water for hours and hours and hours. Um, and by the way, across from AT&T Park in San Francisco, there's McCovey Cove, Mm -hmm. There is a hole in the asphalt in the parking lot across from McCovey Cove, across from the from the park, um, where at high tide, you can drop a shrimp in through a fishing pole as you're sitting in your car and pull out rockfish out of the bay. That's crazy. But the city of San Francisco wouldn't let us use it on TV because they didn't want to encourage people parking lot fishing. So speaking of McCovey Cove, we can kind of get into another category of so-called trash fish, and that's sharks. So right outside McCovey Cove in that general vicinity is a very good place to fish for leopard sharks and sometimes seven gills. And I find that sharks in general um, are misunderstood in pretty much every conceivable way. 
Number one, I think there's a lot of people who think that every single one of them is endangered and that if you eat any shark, you're somehow some kind of a monster, which is simply not true. Um, there are lots and lots and lots of species, especially in the United States, that are plentiful and that as long as you're following the rules, you're not going to do anything to the, to the species. And two, that they're just not worth eating. And the only shark that I've ever had any experience with that was really absolutely challenging was the blue shark. And all sharks that I have tried either in a restaurant or from catching them, it's just it's a bit like the bowfin where you need to catch the shark, decide if you're going to keep it, bonk it on the head, bleed it. So I usually will run a line through its jaws and out the gills and, and bleed it over the side for a while and then gut it right there and get it on ice. If you don't have ice, you're out of luck. And this is why many people who have had experiences with sharks, skates, and rays, the elasmobranchs, that whole category of fish, um, they do kind of sort of pee through their skin. So you get this ammonia effect that is super unpleasant. And it's why when you see cazon in Mexico, which is basically their word for little shark, um, they are often heavily, heavily sauced because they are not, they're not doing the ice thing on the boat the way that I might do it. And uh, I know you have experience with sharks, Scott, but uh, Tom, I don't think there is anything like that in the freshwater kingdom, is there? A fish that pees through its skin? No. Uh, as, far, as far as I know, um, there's nothing like that. So um, I'll defer to you guys talking about eating these, these sharks. It's nothing that I've ever tried before. I don't think would be interested in, but I'm intrigued. <laughs> what was it like eating the ones you have eaten? They are the finest fish and chips you'll ever eat. Wow. I thought by far my favorite has been the mako. Um, I'm not sh sure why it was just maybe it was that particular mako. It was a, I got it from a, a wholesaler. It was a bycatch for them, and it was absolutely delicious, creamier, it seemed like it's not quite as firm as some of the other. I'll be tagging sharks in Florida next Friday. <laughs> and I know that we're targeting tigers, but I think black tips are going to be probably the most common we're going to run into. We're going to be in the Gulf by Crystal River in Florida. Um, but I have really, other than people mishandling the fish, I think shark is exceptional. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do too. I mean, I think Mako is so popular because it's very similar to swordfish. Right. Um, and I remember as a kid in the 1980s going to fish markets and seeing mako shark right next to swordfish all the time. And I don't think it's still done that way because I think makos do get overfished in some places. So I think they've kind of put, a, put the brakes on that in terms of a commercial fishery. Um, but the little sharks, you know, bonnet heads, black tips, leopard sharks, and all the varieties of dogfish, which are, you know, sort of your generic small brownish gray um, stealing all your bait kind of shark. <laughs> um, I think there are those who hate them and then those who love them. And I think the people who hate them are just, just maybe just hate sharks or they've just mishandled them. Well, and then the other saltwater fish, the barracuda, you know, mackerel, all the dark oily fish, they get the same kind of bad rap, but I've had really good luck with all of them. Yeah. I think it's, again, this goes back to the preparation. Right. And, and not necessarily like, like many of the freshwater so-called trash fish are what Tom's talking about, which they've got an extra set of bones or they're weird looking. I think in the saltwater, you get the darker meats, the fish that go off much faster, which is pretty much all of the, what I call the gray fish. 
you know, that's, you know, Bluefish, Mackerel, Bonita, uh, the Jacks. None of those are really fantastic unless you treat them well on the boat. And if you do, they are every bit as fantastic as the other. I mean, I, the Bonita are incredible fish. I love them. I know. And they're, they're so hated in Southern California. <laughs> I agree. Like, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I will be fishing for yellowtail or something else and the Bonita will swim by. And everybody in the boat is like, ah, goddamn Bonita. I'm like, yay, Bonita. Because- but, you know, I, I look at that kind of like Spoonies and Snow Geese is that a lot of the people that say they don't like them have never had them. They've just heard that Bonita is not good to eat. So, yeah, I don't eat Bonita. I don't eat Snow Geese. That's Sky Carp. You know? So I get the same kind of thing. I don't know that a lot of these people have actually tried it or at least tried it done correctly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true kind of universally. I, I mean, let's explore that for a second. So, Tom, where do you think this comes from? Where do you think this kind of hierarchy that you mentioned before, where does it come from and why does it stick around? Well, I think there's a number of factors going on, Hank, but one of them is just class. I mean, there's a hierarchy of fish in North America and, you know, there's the fish that the sort of the rich hoity-toity people go after and then there's the, the fish that poor people fish for bullheads and panfish and and the and the the higher end you know are the fly anglers in Montana with their you know four hundred dollar rods and six hundred dollar reels and you know they're out catching the premier game fish brown trout and, and rainbow trout and so you know that that's a factor and I think people sort of tend to turn their noses down on fish that they just see sort of regular people fishing, shore fishing for. And uh, so I think that's part of it. I think that's, that's one of the factors. Earlier, Scott had mentioned uh, bottom feeders. And I think that's another factor too, this idea that fish that feed off the bottom have less prestige, don't taste as good. Um, I think that's a myth, but I think that's a very strong perception regarding uh, channel catfish, uh, bullheads, uh, carp, certainly suckers, um, this issue that they're feeding off the bottom and that that's a bad thing. Trout mostly feed off the bottom. You know, they're feeding on, <laughs> they're feeding on aquatic insects on the bottom. You know, they mostly are not feeding on the done form of mayflies on the surface. And even if they are, that insect spent its life on the bottom. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a strange notion, but I think that's part of it, the bottom feeding. I mean, you're right. I mean, now that you mentioned it, I had thought about it years ago because, I mean, there is the term, oh, that person's a bottom feeder. And it's filtered into the greater societal, you know, all the uh, American linguistics and as in general. And yeah, I mean, benthic versus pelagic, it is a little bit more strongly associated um, in the saltwater because there's this entire set of pelagic species like tuna and dorado and wahoo and Fish, you need an expensive boat and expensive gear to catch. Whereas, you know, if you drop, if you're just dropping, deep dropping on the bottom, A, it's, in my opinion, it's more fun because you don't necessarily know what you're going to get. And B, I mean, you never know what you're going to get. I mean, that's the thing. I was, even in freshwater, I was, I was in God's Lake in Manitoba and we were ostensibly jigging for lake trout. And I kept bringing up bourbon after bourbon after bourbon. And I was the happiest guy in the boat because these guys could keep their, oh, damn bourbon are everywhere. I'm like, yay, damn bourbon are everywhere. And, and it's funny, even to the extent of 
you mentioned class and class is definitely a thing, but even within a, a relatively homogenous society, you've got weird, weird hangups. Like, so the, the, the guides on that particular trip were Cree Indian. And so the, the Cree guides never ate the bourbon ever. It wasn't fit to eat. And so I, I, here's this crazy American saying, no, 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 I'm going to do it. They wouldn't even let me cook shore lunch in the same pan as their pike. Because Pike was their shore lunch. And I cooked the burbot, and sure enough, they liked it. They ate it. But it was just something that had never occurred to them. That was not a fit fish to eat. And I do see this a lot. And I bet you you guys too. You mentioned class, and that's definitely one. But, you know, you kind of have to throw in ethnicity in here too. I mean, there's a great number of fish that that other group catches. And it's usually some other group. And it's very fluid and variable. but it's that fish that somebody else catches and that you identify part of at least your fishing identity with not eating that fish. And I find that fascinating. You know, when I was a kid, we would snag carp below the dam at Lake Akatink in Northern Virginia. And whenever we would snag the, you know, we were just using big treble hooks and whatever kind of mono. And whenever we would get the carp, to the shore, the black guys would come over and say, because they knew that those stupid white kids aren't going to want those carp, and they knew that they could make a great meal out of it. So it's not an opinion. It just is. The black guys would come over, and they'd take all, whatever carp that we didn't want, which was all of them. Um, prior to 1900, Americans thought tuna was a trash fish. And now I say California is the ahi tuna state because that's all anybody eats around here. <laughs> and carp was on the menu and the finer restaurants in the U.S. But then all of a sudden, hey, tuna, let's try tuna. Um, so you just never know. There's, there's, you know, ethnic diversity on what we do and we don't eat. You know, in, in Texas, we were getting long, no, or excuse me, uh, alligator gar, big alligator gar, six, seven foot alligator gar which are ridiculously hard to process. But once you get to the meat, it's really good. It's white, flaky, moist meat. And yet the white people that we ran into in Texas didn't do much with it. They considered it a trash fish. And then there's others there that said, trash my ass, this fish is delicious. Yeah, I learned about alligator gar in terms of a, as a food fish down in Brownsville. And Brownsville's basically Tomalipas, Mexico. It's, it's right on the other side of the border. And we, I first ate it at a place called uh, Mariscos La Roviar in Brownsville. And we were just actually going to the liquor store right next to it. And then they had Catan painted it on their display window. And I didn't know. I mean, I know gar is peje lagarto in Spanish, but Catan is the local word for the alligator gar. And so my friends, Jesse Griffiths and Miguel um, Gonzalez, their eyes lit up. They have Catan. And so we walked in and made sure that it actually was alligator gar. And damn, if that wasn't some of the best fish I ever ate. And, right. And people consider it a trash fish. A lot of yeah. people do. And it's so good. I, I know. It is funny. So you've got class, you've got ethnicity, and you also have region. So two of my favorite examples are the Cabazon. So the Cabazon is a big giant sculpin that lives here in the Pacific and they are highly sought after in California. Highly. Like if you catch a cab, it's like, it's a big deal. People want it. Well, virtually the same fish is the sea robin in the North Atlantic. And 
they're starting to eat them a little bit more these days. But when I was there all the way up through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even the early 2000s, no one would eat them. And yet you can go further east. So, you know, we like them in California. They hate them in the Northeast. But if you go further east to the European side of the Atlantic, the rascas, which is basically the same thing as the sea robin, is one of the quintessential fish in bouillabaisse. So it just it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then you go the other way, shad, American shad, is highly sought after and is considered one of the kings of fish in the Atlantic seaboard. Well, it's garbage fish in, in the Pacific Northwest and here in Sacramento. You know, Hank, one of the things that you mentioned is the changing tastes of people and how their tastes change over time. And I think the best example of that that I know of is carp. I mean, carp are not the common carp. Carp are not native to North America. Mm-hmm. But um, when Europeans came to this country in the late 19th century, they looked around and there were no carp and they wanted carp. That was a a highly esteemed fish in Europe, and uh, especially in Eastern Europe. So they imported carp from Germany. The, the U.S. Fish Commission imported carp here. And carp were distributed by rail to states all over the country, at first only to the most prominent citizens of a region. And so they would go to the mayor or they would go to some business tycoon, and that person would have a carp pond in his backyard, and then they would serve carp at Christmas and at on other religious holidays like they did in Europe. But eventually the carpus escaped and they can survive in about anything. And so they were found in waters all over the United States. But even by the late 19th century and the 1890s, they were sold in fish stalls in St. Paul and in Kansas City and in, and in Chicago. They were still highly regarded. But then something happened and carp became the most despised fish of all. I think, in the United States. And I think what happened is that water got increasingly polluted. And because carp can survive in anything, and uh, all the native fish had died out, and so people looked down at these rivers, the Mississippi and the Missouri and the Ohio, these cesspools, and the only thing that was left left alive swimming with the turds and toilet paper <laughs> were, the, were the carp. And, they, and people thought, God, those carp like that. And I'm not going to eat those fish because, of course, and we haven't even talked about that, but how fish take on the taste of the, of the water they swim in. And so, indeed, those carp were not any good to eat. And so carp just became the bottom of the bottom feeders. But since the, the passage of the Clean Water Act, waters have cleaned up immeasurably. And I think people are increasingly seeing that carp and other fish that are able to survive in polluted water are also able to survive in very clean water and can taste quite good. Hmm. I think you're definitely onto something there for sure, because even out here and even in modern times right now, carp are kind of hated because they will live in an irrigation ditch here in the Central Valley of California and virtually nothing else can. Scott, is there an equivalent with saltwater fish that there's species that are able to survive in a kind of a tepid lagoon with a oil slick on top and people would turn their noses down at that or? You know, I cannot think of a saltwater equivalent. Hank, can you? Yep. Uh, the oyster toad, the, uh, the oyster shell cracker uh, known as an oyster toad. And imagine it sort of like a mini monkfish which is to say a big giant head with a little tail and it doesn't do a lot of swimming because it kind of, you know, scuttles along the bottom looking for shellfish and its head is so big and its muscles are so big that it can crack oysters 
by when it finds them. And you typically fish for them on the bottom in the marina. And nobody I knew ate them, but I was probably, God, I was probably 12 years old maybe. And I was on the Norma K3 in Point Pleasant, Manasquan area, New Jersey. And before we even untied from the dock, the guy sitting next to me, he was a Korean War veteran, and he was fishing right there. And he said, I'm like, what the hell are you doing? He's like, oh, fish for oyster toads. And I'm like, you mean the shellcrackers? He's like, yeah. Why on earth would you eat them? He's like, and he brought one up. He caught one like 10 minutes later. And he said, look at this head on this thing. And so this fish, I kid you not, was no bigger than about maybe eight to 10 inches, maybe about 10 inches. And he, he stuck his fillet knife in his head to kill it and then cut the cheeks out. The cheeks on this 10-inch fish were the size of silver dollar, like a sphere, the size of a silver dollar. Mm. And his wife loved them, and they would just fry them and eat them. And that fish has no problem living in a, in a nasty lagoon with an oil slick on top of it. And I wrote about it in my first cookbook, um, God, 10 years ago. And I got all this you know, feedback from people. You can't eat those. I'm like, well, you probably don't want to eat a ton of them, but you know, a little mercury never hurt anybody. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, which is eFish. eFish delivers fresh, never frozen, wild, American caught day boat seafood right to your doorstep. These guys have supplied seafood for every Michelin three-star restaurant in the country and even the Pope. And now they're shipping to you listeners. What's unique about eFish is that they don't have a warehouse full of fish. They simply connect you straight to the source. This means that in most cases, your product is still swimming when you placed your order. Their business operates the same way I order fish for my fishermen friends across the country. The fish goes straight from the dock to you overnight. It doesn't get much fresher than that unless you catch it yourself. eFish takes an incredibly personable approach to purchasing seafood online. If you aren't sure exactly what you're looking to purchase, they are more than happy to help with recommendations and pass on their wealth of knowledge about seafood and the products they are selling. With eFish, you can always be sure that your fish is ethically sourced, never treated with chemicals, and is handled with care from the minute it's hooked until it arrives at your doorstep. If you want fresh seafood for your next dinner, Check out efish.com. That is e-fish.com. Get 10% off your first order with my code HuntGatherTalk. Again, and that is e-fish.com. I just think this whole topic is just really interesting because it is this constantly shifting kaleidoscope of tastes and opinions. And I mean, yeah, you're right. You mentioned bluefin before, or you mentioned tuna in general before. Well, bluefin in specific were considered cat food until the 70s. Right. Once the canneries opened up, um, and you know, in San Diego, as we've talked about on the Fishmonger TV show, was the tuna capital of the world. But prior to that, you know, not so much. Uh, tuna was, you know, tuna was something, you're right, tuna was something in a can. Um, you didn't have tuna sashimi anywhere for a long time. And you also have a similar, you know, you have this kind of industries where, it's trash to somebody, but that it's, it's revered to somebody else, which we've been kind of talking about that all this time with recreational fishing, but pink salmon in a can is a great example of virtually nobody eats pink salmon in Alaska. Cause why would you, you've got four other species that are considered better than pinks. And I mean, 
that's an exaggeration. Of course, some people eat pinks and whatever, whatever, but no one is going to choose a pink over a sockeye or a king or a coho. However, pinks run in unbelievable numbers to this day, and they have always been the focus of the salmon cannery. So for a century or more, the canned pink salmon, and I'm sure many of you can envision in your head that, that pint-sized can, it's a big can, with a red label with a salmon jumping on it. It's just canned pink salmon. Like you can see it in old Popeye cartoons even. And that particular kind of canned pink salmon has become revered in the South. You, I'm looking at a stack of Southern cookbooks right now, and there's about 15 of them stacked up next to each other that I'm looking at, and about 11 of them have a recipe for a salmon cake or a salmon croquette, and it always uses canned pink salmon to the point where I, when I went down there and I talked about how much I like salmon and the only thing anybody ever does in the South with salmon is to use well, now they probably use some fresh salmon or frozen or Costco or whatever. But historically, it has always been that one dish with that one salmon. You know, I can, I, my mother uh, is very Southern, and I grew up on that canned salmon. It was always some kind of fish patty of some sort, and it tasted really salmony, and I can still picture it right now. But mom wasn't a very good cook, which might have been part of my inspiration, too. I don't know. <laughs> how, about, how, how about you, Tom? Is there a... I mean, you wrote Fishing for Buffalo. And actually, you know what? Let's t- I, I want to know why you wrote that book because it's, it is unique in the sense that I don't know of another so-called trash fish book ever written. And it, you might be the only one. Well, well thanks, Hank. And I, it, it's worth noting I did co-write that with my friend Rob Buffler. Right. And we wrote it, um, <laughs> we wrote it in 1989. And we wrote it because... Uh, in the late 80s, we would fish a lot. We both lived in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, he was a, a wilderness guide in uh, northern Minnesota. Um, and I was working for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources as a writer at the time. And we fished a lot together when we would get together. And we like to fish for trout. Um, but the trout fishing in, in the Midwest is pretty much over by midsummer. There's, the water is too warm, and there's so many nettles along the streams. It's just torture getting around there. And so we just decided to start fishing rivers and just using the same techniques we use for trout, mainly nymphing and doing some dry fly fishing. If we saw fish come up, like sometimes Moon and I would come up to the surface and take a caddis. And we started catching all these fish and we didn't know what they were. We were catching red horse and drum and long nose gar and high fin carp suckers and uh, hog mollies and smallmouth buffalo. And we just, we didn't have a clue what they were. And we've been fishing our whole lives. And we'd see that people were just throwing them up on shore. And we'd ask them, why are you doing that? And they're saying, oh, they, they kill the game fish or they eat the eggs of the game fish. And I was working for a natural resources agency at the time. And Rob had a degree in um, aquatic ecology, and it just struck us wrong. that There had to be more to it than that. That couldn't be right. So we started looking into it and started learning about these fish species and then catching them, and we were having so much fun. And we'd go fishing in downtown St. Paul, and we'd catch fish until our arms, we couldn't catch any fish anymore. We'd have cramps in our hands. <laughs> and we were the only ones fishing, and a lot of those fish, like drum and and uh, smallmouth buffalo, they were great to eat. We'd take them home and we'd flay them up. And we just thought, what is everyone else missing? We just didn't get it. And so 
we started to call around. This is all before the internet. We called around and we, we sent for flyers from other agencies. We got information from the South and from Eastern states. And we started compiling all this information on all of these so-called growth fish and finding these traditions in other parts of the country. And we just thought, geez, we should compile this into a book because no one will ever believe it. And it, since then, it's been called the Bible of rough fishing. And it really is. There's really nothing quite like it. There's certainly people who have since have taken rough fishing to a higher level. There's a roughfish.com website that's uh, based out of Minnesota. And these are some young guys in their 20s and 30s, and they just put me and Rob to shame, their skills with rough fishing. But there's the carp anglers group. There's uh, GAS, the Gar Anglers Sportsman Society, and uh, <laughs> Bofin Anglers Group, BAG, um, and uh, together they're a gas bag. And they're, uh, <laughs> they're, they're kind of a tongue-in-cheek angling group, but they're still in existence, and they're based out of Illinois. So there's the whole concept of rough fishing is really caught on in the United States, um, mainly for sport, but also for the culinary qualities of some of these species. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I, I was struck by well, reading your book, actually, first, I think that's where I first saw it, is that even though there's a bunch of natives that look like carp, you know, all the various suckers and the moon eyes and the buffaloes and such, I mean, they superficially look a lot like carp. But almost none of them can handle the wretched water that a real carp can. And so I've always told people like, well, if you're catching suckers, that means your water that you're fishing in is pretty good quality. Yeah, that's a great point, Hank. And it depends on the species. Um, white suckers can tolerate a lot more polluted water than a fine scale sucker, a blue sucker, or especially the long nose sucker we have in Montana. You know, those are found in the same streams that you'll see West Slope cutthroat trout and bull trout you know, the same water quality requirements and, and water temperature. But uh, mistaking the carp for suckers, suckers are all in the Catastomidae family um, in the Midwest of South Dakota, Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, Michigan. You have anywhere between 15 and 20 sucker species. There's 35 in North America. And uh, all those fish we've talked about, the buffaloes, the big mouth, the black, and the smallmouth buffaloes, those are all sucker species. And then the hyphen carp suckers are called carp suckers, but they're not carp. And uh, the carp is actually a member of the minnow family. So it's related to the fathead minnow and other minnows. It's just a giant oversized minnow. That reminds me, we forgot to mention the pike minnow, Scott. Pike minnow. Oh, yeah, my that's, that's what we call it now. Yes. And, and, and they're bony. Nobody eats them. You're fishing for something else. You happen to get a pike minnow and you're annoyed by it most of the time, and yet they're edible. Uh, we're going to actually target them here for a dead meat show in Northern California. And back to the buffalo just for a second, we're going to bow fish for buffalo later this year in Texas. And when I was talking to our guides, I said, what do people do there? How do they prepare it? Because part of the dead meat show, we want to know how people cook it, not how I cook it. And they said, well, nobody eats it. Well, what do you do with it? You're, you know, I mean, you're bow fish into these things. It's not like you can release them. And apparently they just end up at the landfill and nobody eats all of these buffalo that people are shooting there. That's a total race thing because my first experience with buffalo fish ever. So I worked for a black newspaper called the Madison Times Weekly Newspaper from 1992 to 1994. And um, I was kind of the only white guy on staff. And 
I ended up leaving Wisconsin and left that job. And so they had a big giant barbecue for me. So the whole, imagine the whole soul food spread. And in that spread were big chunks of fried buffalo. And so what they had done was they had filleted the big sides of the buffalo. And, the, you know, they're, they're basically like carp in the sense they've got that extra set of Y bones. And so they had moved around it, but the fish was so big that they had these big, you know, like two inch on a side chunks of fish that were just deep fried and were amazing. And that's the first time I'd ever even heard of the fish. I'm like, this is just perfectly good fish. And I think this sort of circles back into what we were talking about 10, 20 minutes ago, which is like those other people eat them. And I do remember offering somebody $100 to eat a piece of uh, paddlefish in Missouri. And as much as he likes to snag paddlefish, he would never thought of eating them. And I'm thinking, who doesn't eat paddlefish? These things are delicious. Offering yeah. a hundred bucks, he wouldn't eat it. Weird. Because, I mean, in my experience, they're not that different from sturgeon. No, no, no. They're delicious. Yeah, sturgeon is another lipped fish. So there is a prejudice against sturgeon by some people, but um, I think both of you guys have had sturgeon. They're really extraordinary fish with a really sort of such a different texture from any other fish that I've ever had, any other freshwater fish. They're Albany fantastic. beef. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the old uh, Atlantic sturgeon that they've overfished to the point where I don't know if that fishery will ever come back. But a century ago, before they closed it, it was known as Albany beef because they would catch so much of it that they would sell these steaks you know, the industry is based out of Albany, New York, and they would sell these steaks of white beef because it was, had a very similar texture. Yeah, I've always thought that sturgeon were very pork-like and, mm. and in a good way. Yeah, I've, I, especially the bigger ones. I love sturgeon. I think one other piece to this is the oddity. We've talked about how they look, but there's another piece to it in the sense that there are a lot of fish that are deemed as trash fish are not easy to catch. Like you don't catch them in this course of a normal day. And carp for one are one of those because if you're fishing for regular fish, you're not going to catch carp very often if you're fishing with, say, bait or lures, um, unless you are actually targeting carp with different sets of things. And then there's a whole bunch of other things that, you know, whitefish, you know, lake whitefish are not that easy to catch in the course of a regular fishing trip. So there's these set of fish that are oddities like, whoa, I've never seen that fish before. Is it edible? And you see that all over the place. You know, I think another factor is fish that are sort of problematic to just deal with. And I'm reminded of Scott's show on the lionfish, catching those lionfish. They had these beautiful little fillets, but it required kind of an industrial (laughs) uh, spine removal process. The guy, I think he was using like, you know, heavy gloves and Scott, you can, you can, explain that, but he had some sort of like a tin snips. He was cutting those spines off. And then it's the same with bullheads and catfish. I mean, people who've never held a bullhead, if you've ever been stepped on a bullhead, you'll never forget that. And so I think a lot of people don't know how to handle a bullhead, don't know how to handle a catfish, don't know how how to handle a northern pike. And so they just throw it back because they don't want to have to deal with it. Mm. And, and, you know, the lionfish, as you mentioned, once you, and, and he did use tin snips and kind of steel gloves. And um, once you cut those spines off, they fillet like any other fish and they're incredible. They're really good. You know, sculpin that we get here can be a little tricky to process too, but you cut the spines off, you're good to go. 
Yeah, I mean, even the regular rockfish. I mean, yeah. I, I'm looking at my hands right now. I was rockfishing a couple of days ago and, and yeah, all kinds of like minor lacerations. And then I got one, you know, back quill off of a, uh, I think it was a vermilion and it jammed me so bad uh, in the back of one finger, the spine bounced off the bone and uh, that hurt like a son of a bitch for like a good <laughs> 25 minutes. And like, you think you've been poisoned, but it's really just, who knows what was on that spine. So yeah, I mean, I think if you had to do the opposite of trash fish, in my opinion, the opposite of trash fish, the supermodel of fish would be the salmonids, the salmon and trout family. Like, I think everybody views them as an attractive looking fish that, and I don't think anybody dislikes them in terms of a food fish. Now, there's people who don't necessarily like to eat salmon, but I think no one would deny like, oh, well, salmon aren't for eating. I think everyone would agree that. And I'm wondering what other would be the, what would your vote for the supermodel of fish be? Well, getting back to trout, I think it's interesting. I think everyone thinks trout look beautiful. But when I was growing up in Minnesota, you know, to have trout for dinner, that was sort of the ultimate luxury, especially if you'd go to the Black Hills or, oh gosh, to Montana or Wyoming. My parents would always want to have trout and it was such a big deal. And when I moved to Montana 20 years ago, no one here eats trout. It's just not done, except in backcountry. If they go up into a mountain lake and they catch some brook trout or some cutthroat up there, they might fry them up. But generally, people don't eat trout. I never really understood why it is. But my two theories, one is, is that the catch and release ethic is so strong that just people don't kill trout. It's just not done. It's just forbidden. And the other is that a lot of the trout that people are catching during the height of the season, the water's quite warm you know, in Montana and in Wyoming in midsummer, the water's getting up into the high 60s. And so the trout just don't taste that good. The, the, mm-hmm. the meat is kind of mushy and they're just not that palatable. But the tourists, of course, they're eating trout all the time in the Yellowstone Lodge and in the Big Hole River area lodges and cabins. Those trout mostly are farm trout. So they're eating farmed rainbows that probably were raised in Missouri. Or Idaho. Right, I don't, yeah. And I don't think, I mean, to me, there's a lot of so-called trash fish that taste so much better than trout. Ah, there it is. There it trout, is. Trout, to me, just doesn't. I mean, there's not a whole lot to it. I don't think they have a whole lot of flavor. You know, that's just a personal opinion. There's a whole lot of fish I'd rather eat before a trout. Hey, here, I'm going to say it, too. I would rather eat a freshwater <laughs> drum than pretty much any trout in America. I'm with you. I, and I, I'm, you know, I'm with you, too, yeah. Maybe a big steely is a little different, but, you know, we don't typically keep those. But if we do happen to keep a big one, you know, they're more salmon-like. But um, just your basic rainbow trout, you know, that was planted a week ago, I got nothing. I'm not interested. Yep. Yep. hundred percent. So I think I want to close us up with advice for people listening to this about how to get over your hangups. Because everybody listening to this has a trash fish or three or 12 in his or her mind. I did it from scarcity. So I got over my hangups on trash fish because number one, I'm just kind of that kind of guy. I always zig where people zag. And number two, I had this great experience when I was in my 20s. I used to hang out at a bar uh, in Bayport, Long Island. And I, you know, if you're a guy in your late 20s, you tend to talk a lot of smack and I was no exception. So I walked in there one day and I said, a place called Cavanaugh's, and I walked in there one day and I said, hey man, I bet you that every time I go fishing this year, I'm going to catch something. 
and they told me to put my money where my mouth was. And so what they did was like, all right, so the bet was this, you know, it was an honor system, but you know, I wasn't going to lie. Um, I would let them know that I was going fishing and then I would come back to the bar and show them what I caught on any given day. So the bet was this, if I won, I could drink free beer there for a month. If I lost, I had to pay the entire bar's tab for a night. So being in my late twenties, the prospect of financial ruin was real. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to learn. I became a much better angler in general, but I also became a student of the unusual. And this is really what it gets down to from my piece of advice. And I want to hear yours in a second. You have to understand that not every fish is good floured and fried. Many are, but some are just not. And you have to understand that not every fish is going to be eaten in or look the same as the filet that you have in your head. So the grim days, which turned out to not be so grim once I figured it out, eels. I would catch eels off the dock sometimes. Um, and eels are unbelievably delicious, but they're weird looking and you have to peel their skin off much like a catfish. Uh, white bait. One day when I was throwing bait, for you know, I would throw a little mist net for the little minnows that live by the side of the dock and I'd use them as bait. Well, one day that's all I had. And so the guys at the bar were like, you got to eat it. So I'm like, all right. So I floured them and fried them and they were, I didn't know at the time that there was a thing called white bait, which is this English thing of, they call it fries with eyes, a uh, little tiny whole fish fried and, and they're fantastic. Puffer fish was another one. So I didn't realize that you could eat puffer fish because I'd heard about fugu where you die if you eat some of the liver. But they're a delicacy in the eastern seaboard. And so I, I learned all of these other fishes and these special ways of cooking them and eating them that, A, it, it allowed me to drink free beer for a month, and B, it made me a much better angler, and C, it made me understand the nuances and the different ways of cooking something. So my, my advice is you don't have to make a financially ruinous bet to do this, but start thinking outside the flour and fry world. and and use the internet to search for what do you do with this unusual fish that you just caught? And that will go a long way to give you some steps to enjoying everything that you catch. So that would be my advice. What do you guys think? Tom, go ahead. Well, I guess I have two pieces of advice. The first one for, and this is freshwater fish, but most of the freshwater fish in North America are edible. And so you know, right off the bat, you can eat pretty much anything you catch. So just knowing that is, I mean, have at it. And the other is that most things that people have learned about fish and what fish are good fish and what fish are bad fish and what fish are trash. And those are things you learn from your uncle Ed or your brother-in-law. It's just mostly nonsense. And, and they learned it from their uncle or some guy at, at work. And he learned it from some guy at work and they don't know what they're talking about. So I think if you just know, from hearing from the three of us, that almost all freshwater fish are edible, and the whole idea that there is a hierarchy and there's some good fish and some bad fish is just, again, just kind of nonsense too. And look at all fish with an open mind. They're all fun to catch. They all are, can be caught in a fly rod if you want to. And almost all of them are not only palatable, but can be downright fantastic to eat. I think I'm going to do a show um, in search of the Fish with forward-facing eyes and big lips, I think. That's, uh, I, I think 
That would be an excellent show. I'll tell you, if I'm reminded when I was a kid, um, I would fish with my dad, and when we were done fishing, and we're talking about Northern Virginia, 90-degree lake water, catching crappie, bass, whatever. He would scoop water out of the lake into this metal bucket, put it in the back of the truck, and then we'd drive home for about an hour and a half. He hated fish. Fish was so bad, and I thought, this is what fish tastes like. So if you're going to try some new fish, give the fish the best chance you can and get them gutted, bled on ice, all that stuff, because it's going to be a better fish. If it just happens to be a, well, you know, let's try cooking this catfish. It's been on the stringer in the 90 degree water for the last six hours. Um, Maybe there's a better way, but I'm with you. They're all edible. And when in doubt, uh, run them through the grinder and make fish cakes. <laughs> fish cakes, a universal, uh, universal savior, <laughs> right? Or broth, you know. Like I, uh-huh. I, I once caught a whole bunch of, um, God, they were just I forget what they were. There's some kind of a little sucker, like a dace, and they weren't really, really small. They're like six inches long, and, and I, like I tried my best, and I just it wasn't working. So I ended up making a really good broth, and then I made fish risotto out of the broths, and and then that was delicious. So yep. I talked to a park manager in southeastern. Minnesota one time and, and uh, the stream down there had, had brook trout in it, native brook trout, but also had creek chubs and creek chubs are a, a big minnow species. They get to be eight inches long and they're about the same size as the brook trout. And I was down there one time and I was talking to the park manager and she said, you know, most people here catch creek chubs and they just, I walk by their campsite and they're frying them up and they're talking about how great they are. And I said, well, do you tell them that they're not trout? And she said, no, why bother? And so they thought they were eating trout, but they're eating creek chubs. So if you don't know, maybe it doesn't matter. <laughs> that is totally fair. So, uh, Tom, is Fishing for Buffalo still, can people still get it on an Amazon or in regular bookstores? Yeah, it's still available at, at both. Oh, excellent. So I will definitely put a link to that in the show notes. And, uh, Scott, you have a lot of different ways that people can get in touch with you. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, sporting, sportingchef.com is probably the best place to start. There's recipes and all the other links to wherever it is you have to go. We've got Sporting Chef, Dead Meat, and The Fishmonger is our new show that's on Outdoor Channel that we've got hosted by Tommy Gomes. And um, I'm back on the road pretty much full-time now, shooting shows. Yay, yay for the uh, aftertime. Yay, yay. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for being on the show, guys. Uh, this has been great. We could probably just talk about weird and unusual fish uh, forever. Um, but this has been fun, and I uh, look forward to seeing you guys in person when I am on the road this year. Very cool. Thank you. I look forward to that, Hank. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. As usual, you can find me on social media at Hunt, Gather, Cook on Instagram. I also run the Hunt, Gather, Cook group in Facebook. And if you want to join that group, you just have to answer a few questions and say that you heard me on my podcast, and I will let you in. The core of what I do is my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. You can find that at huntgathercook.com and you will find literally thousands of recipes for wild food ranging from all sorts of fish, all sorts of seafood, venison, small game, ducks and geese, plants, mushrooms, you name it. So go to Hunter Angler Gardener Cook and you will find all of that good stuff. And finally, a request. Yes, I do have two sponsors, Filson and eFish, and they are both fine companies. But I specifically keep my sponsorship and my ad level very low on this podcast 
so that you guys can have a much cleaner and and more pure listening experience. And to do that, however, I do ask that you might consider going to the website at huntgathercook.com and clicking the button in the podcast page that says support this podcast. And it's a bit like public radio where no, I'm not going to go off the air if you don't chip in, but chipping in is exactly like public radio in the sense that it allows me to stay as sponsor free as I actually have been able to do. And if you listen to other podcasts, you know, there are tons and tons and tons and tons of ads and podcasts and, and cut-ins throughout the whole thing. And I just don't want to do that. And the only way I can do that is with your help. So go to Hunt, Gather, Cook, go to the podcast page, and you will see a support the podcast button. Click that. And if you do, you get everything from six bucks will get you my very good thank you. And I will send you a bumper sticker for Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. You can also get signed books uh, as premium. So it's, it's, it's exactly like you would with public radio, except you're going to help me out. So I hope you consider it. I really appreciate it. And I will talk to you next week. We're going to have another fantastic episode on fish and seafood. You'll just have to wait until next week to find out. I'm your host, Hank Shaw. This is Hunt Gather Talk. And thanks for listening.